You should have a handout that uh, Stephen made called The Infallibility of Scripture. And tonight we're going to continue from last week's subject. Um, uh oh, little typo. That actually should be emphasis 6C small 2. Uh, I must have forgot to change that part. Uh, otherwise, you should be all right. So last week, if you remember, we dealt with uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. And uh, who can remind me what we mean by inerrancy of Scripture? Or give me a couple verses that, that point it out. All right, go ahead. You left out an important phrase before. It's what it's good for. All scripture is God breathed God would be the ESV version of it and a, probably a more literal than the NS, in, a, in a rare case where the ESV is more literal than the NASB, which says all scripture is inspired by God. But really the Greek words theatos and pneumatos, so I mean it's God, it's breathed of God. And the word is the same word is, that's used for the spirit of God. Uh, breath, wind, spirit are all the same work in the Greek, pneumatos. And we all know that, that pneumatos is the root of, say, pneumatic. Who knows what, pneum like, what would a pneumatic machine be? Air-powered. Air-powered machinery, right. Okay. What? What are, the, what are you ladies laughing about? What, a breathing machine? <laughs> A breathing machine. Hopefully, we won't need one of those for, for a while. Um, I gotta take this off. Okay, so, uh, who who knows another scripture that that would uh, that we used last week? Yep. Yeah, we did. So go ahead. Right. Some of your word is truth. We talked a little bit about the different words that different translations use for ordinances, and we talked about what those are, right? Uh, how about uh, a line from Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17? Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth, or your word is truth, depending <laughs> on the translation, right? So... All of those are saying God's word is true and errant. What do we mean by infallible? We touched on this last week, but we didn't do a lot with it. We're going to do more with that this week. I have to tell you that uh, you guys are way ahead of me in that for years, I uh, just sort of assumed as a young Christian that inerrancy and infallibility would be the same thing, but they are totally not. What's that? <laughs> Did somebody just say something? What was that sound? Oh, okay. Um, what's the, what, is, what do we mean? What's, so inerrancy means it's without mistakes. So if something, reading the reverse negative, if something is without mistakes, uh, hopefully some of you, Byron, did you ever have a test that was without mistakes? Didn't. And if it was without mistakes, you got 100%, right? Right? Anybody ever have one of those? I think in third grade, <laughs> third grade spelling test. Biometric kids and honors. Oh my God. 
I once, uh, I once was the bad guy of my fifth or I think fifth grade class because our teacher had promised us if we ever had a week where everyone in the class got 100% on their spelling test, she would buy everyone an ice cream bar, which when you're in fifth grade back in those days, people were a little less spoiled than they are now. Not a, not a lot. But, uh, <laughs> but that would have been a big deal for us in, uh, back in those days. And uh, we had one on abbreviations that everyone was like, oh, this is the one that we can get everyone to get 100%. But I had a pro habit of making my U's look like a V. And so I abbreviated the United States of America as VSA. Uh, so she, she didn't give me, because my U's look like V's, simply because I made them wrong. So I was the bad guy for the whole class. They, they were all mad. Um, anyway, uh, I did not, I was not inerrant. So what does that mean? Hi, Teresa. How problem. are you? You made a mistake. Made a mistake. So, yeah. so to say that the word of God is inerrant, it's that it's without mistakes. Everything in it is true. Now, what could possibly be untrue when we read scripture then? Interpretations. Our interpretations of it could be untrue. But the scripture itself is not untrue. You were going to add something to that? Okay. Our perspective. Okay. All right. Now, so what's the difference? Infallible means something entirely different. What does that mean? That means it can't not be true. <laughs> nope. Well, that's, that's in there. Okay. Well, that is, it's powerful enough to make the truth. Right. It's so. actually infallible means that it will always come to pass. It yeah. will, it will uh, accomplish what it's sent for. Right? Believe it or not, every person who's born again in this room uh, is born again because the Word of God is living and active. Like, Paul, like Peter says in the beginning of his epistle, that you were born of an, an imperishable seed, the Word of God. Right? Uh, John Garrett, John, Jonathan uh, is not a wonderful Christian because he's just so godly. He's a wonderful Christian because he was born again of a living, imperishable seed, right? Right. Anybody here saved by their performance? <laughs> I know. I know all of you too well. <laughs> John Bradbury. I thought I saw a car on the way here that I couldn't read the manufacturer's tag, so I was going to ask you who made that car, but now I can't remember the name of the car. Oh, well. Uh, oh, it was a Forte. Kia. Kia makes it. They need to improve their logo on the thing because I, I thought it might be a Kia, but, it, but it, in the dark it didn't show up very well. Anyway, um, got to have your car guys that know what's going on with cars. So, um, infallibility gets down to that it's that it's not possible to fail so uh who can think of something else in the scripture that the scripture says cannot fail Cindy? this is a bit of a sidebar but it says in john john one that we're both things together by the word of power okay yeah G jesus there's actually something that says blank never fails Love never fails. First Corinthians twelve or thirteen eight, right? Love never fails. What? 
Go ahead, Christian, you said something? I didn't, had, didn't ask the question. I said oh, you had said loud enough. I just didn't hear you loud enough. Okay. All right, shout them out. Just <laughs> knock me over. You know them. Uh, yeah, love never fails, right? So God's word always succeeds in the purpose for which it's sent. So let's look at some scriptures along that line. I guess we'll start with Kyle and uh, go under Roman numeral 4a, read Isaiah 55, and let's just, let's just go around the room read, taking turns reading some of these scriptures. <coughs> Now, that shows a number of things that's very different about God's nature and ours, right? First of all, does every word you send out uh, accomplish the purpose for which it's sent? Sometimes it accomplishes the opposite purpose. Yes, I've been there. We've all been there, right? What else uh, is true about uh, some words that we say that there's not true of God's word? Yep. Well, I mean, God's word can be twisted around as far as that goes, but they can be destructive and not build people up. It's just something something more obvious than that. They can be false. More obvious than that, even. No, what? Okay, so like we got to learn to read the reverse negative. So what this is saying about God's word that's very different than say my word in all in no I hope mean no offense, but all of you have spoken words that weren't for any particularly good purpose. <laughs> right? Anyone ever said any words that didn't have that important of an eternal purpose in the plan of God? <laughs> The Bible says if anyone speaks, they should speak as it is the words of God. You're not even supposed to talk if you're not saying something God wants you to say. <laughs> Some of us are more trouble than others, right? <laughs> right? Anyone ever said some things that God didn't necessarily want you to say? <laughs> don't, don't answer that one. <laughs> right? But that's what this is actually saying is that every word of God is spoken for an, for eternal purposes. That's amazing. There's no word God speaks that that doesn't have uh, His eternal intentions and decrees and will behind it. We know that uh, when you study the attributes of God, you not only study that He's immutable, immutable but He's eternal. And he speaks eternal decrees. That is, he foreknows and predestines all things. And nothing he said says is not sent to accomplish his predestined eternal purposes. That's pretty high standard that we'd have to hold ourselves to, wouldn't it be? That will cut down on the chatter. All right. <laughs> if, we, if we ever did that right. I'm talking about the superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> that, you said it, I didn't. <laughs> All right, who's got the next one? Sam Chen Poon, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 19. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right, so let's talk about a few things with this verse. First of all, I've, I, whether you've done a Greek word study on it or not, I have the Greek words there. If you uh, have BLB or some tool like that, you want to look up the word plerao, uh, you can. Plerao play play would be the pronunciation. Um, but we've talked about what that word means before. Who knows what it means more than just fulfill? Enact. Enact, okay. Put it into force. What, what this scripture is actually saying is Jesus came so that we could actually do the law. Right? If, uh, can anybody fulfill the law in and of themselves? Not even a little. Can we fulfill the law by the grace of Christ? Yes, we're, we're called to. And he actually came to empower us to do so. That's what grace does. Anybody remember the Grace Upon Grace series? We studied that the, the common definition of grace today is what? Unmerited. Unmerited favor. But a more biblical definition is? Acceptance as you are, empowerment you grow. Well, yeah, I, I like that because I, I made up that in slogan. But yeah, it's more than divine, uh, it's more than, uh, divine acceptance or unmerited, undeserved acceptance, but it's empowerment. It's uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. You've been born again. That is, you've received a new nature. Your old nature, did your old nature want to submit to God? No. No. In fact, if anything, Paul talks all about in Romans 7 how uh, the sinful passions within him were aroused by the law to rebel and disobey the law, right? Anybody been there? <laughs> right? What? Yeah. <laughs> Officer Diaz. No. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that's really kind of an amazing verse if you think about it. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to actually empower you to live it is what he's saying. And he doesn't say some of it will be accomplished. Now, when you get into then whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others to do the same... Hey, Chris, how are you? Um, what are some implications of that verse? So, uh, what, who does God's law apply to? Everyone. Everyone. You know, God's, God actually judges or blesses nations by their adherence to his law. So what do you think, uh, what do you think is the implications of uh, one-third of, of pregnancies conceived in the U.S. are aborted? The blood of those babies cries out to God for vengeance, right? On our nation. And for the most part, world abortion has become a worldwide problem. Right? That has implications. I'm just... You know, uh, what about stealing? If you know anything about the, 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 the uh, 
Federal Reserve Bank and how money works in this country and everything. It's a giant stealing scheme that started 104 years ago. And it's a way of taxing the poor people and keeping the poor poor. And making the rich rich off of, and, and inflation is actually caused by stealing. Government legalized stealing. Read a book like Honest Money by Gary North if you don't understand that. I should probably add that to your list for your book reading club. Honest Money by Gary North. It's a free. It's free, by the way. He's, he, you know, he's one of those many Christian authors. There's been kind of a neat trend in the last ten years that many Christian office, authors who have done well have been making a cert, certain percentage of their books free on online, uh, and he's one of those guys. Uh, his book, Against Higher Criticism, is also free, called The Hoax of Higher Criticism by Gary North. Both of those are high, I would highly recommend to you. And, of course, he's the, uh, the main guy between, behind the website, the Institute of Christian Economics. And so many Christians know very little about economics from a biblical perspective that it's kind of actually kind of sick and scary at the same time. But God's law applies to families. God's law applies to churches. God's law applies to nations, even schools. And God blesses those who honor his law and obey it. And God, uh, there's chastisements, uh, sanctions. There is uh, curses for disobeying his law. And there's especially, when you consider that... Uh, Evangelical fundamentalism has become largely antinomianism, uh, undermining the purpose and authority of God's law. That's a scary proposition. When the church is the main, uh, that's supposed to be the pillar and supporter of the truth, has become the main purveyors of deception in our country. All right, who's got the next one? Luke 16. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Uh, go on to the next one, then, uh, Morgan. Does everyone know the context of Luke 24? What's happening in Luke 24? He just got resurrected. He just was resurrected. All, almost all of Luke 24, except the last nine verses, <laughs> happens on Easter Sunday. The last uh, nine verses or so happen on uh, Ascension Thursday. And that forgiveness of sins would be in his, et cetera. So tell me some things from, that you can discern from these verses. All things are going to be fulfilled. Okay. Everything written has to be fulfilled. That's the infallibility of Scripture, right? So that's an important point. Why do you, uh, and where, where uh, did the things about Jesus start uh, in the Gospel of Matthew? Mm-hmm. No, right? There. He's, he's, these, both passages are two different ways the Jews would have spoken about the whole of the Old Testament. In the first one, he says the law of Moses, the prophets, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets. The second one, he says the law of Moses, prophets, Psalms. Remember, we talk about, t- talked about the uh, Hebrew acronym or 
uh, lettering Tanaka last year and so forth, and how the, the Hebrews thought of the Old Testament as being in three divisions, right? Law, uh, writings, and prophets, right? And so both of these are ways that, that a Jewish person in their day would have, would have referred to the whole of the Old Testament, just two different ways, right? So he's basically saying the entire Old Testament is actually about Jesus. That's another implication of these verses. Uh, why do these verses emphasize into both groups? Who's the first group he's talking to? The first half, of before the dot, 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 from verses 25 through 27, who was he talking to? Two people on the road to, the road to Emmaus. Emmaus, right. Okay, well, who's the second group he's talking to? The disciples where? In the upper room, right? Okay, in both cases, it emphasizes that the law and the prophets in the Old Testament uh, foretold that the Christ must suffer. Why is that important? We've talked a little bit about why. Yeah, that that's part part of it is for them to help have perspective. That, but why? What what? Uh, Right, so this is the beginning of an emphasis in the New Testament that we hear that the scriptures said that the Christ must suffer. It's said many times in Acts and several times in the epistles. Why? Suffering servant in Isaiah, where it talks about like how it's suffering servant, that's Christ meant to be. He's not this geopolitical like badass who's going to come in and like rescue the Jewish people from the Roman oppression and everything. Right, but that, that's the message. That's correct. That's the message. But why is that an important thing that the, that the New Testament says over and over again? Well, okay, let's just, what's that? He was changing the paradigms of the day. Right, so explain that more. Because they had the idea that he was going to come and conquer and sit on an actual throne and destroy the Roman Empire and deal with the world. But he was doing that through his kingdom, which is coming through uh, 120 disciples and was going to reign through them by the Holy Spirit. Right, remember when Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 that that the, the cross was a stumbling block, the Greek word scandalizo, it was a scandal to Jews. Why? Because all Jews, just we, the, the people of Jesus' day were in a very similar, almost identical situation to our evangelical Christianity today. They had expectations of a second coming that was going to be geopolitical in nature, and that, you know, what, like, you know, the average person today in the Left Behind series is, you know, things are going to get darker and darker, and we're pretty much impotent until Jesus comes back and rescues us, right? Isn't that kind of what's taught today and what the expectations are? But the Jews had kind of a, almost like our modern faith message and prosperity gospel where everybody gets healed all the time. And, you know, we had a person pray not too long ago that, like, all the drug addicts have stopped doing drugs in one day and so forth, which just kind of negates the, uh, the whole progressive, I don't give you the land overnight kind of revelation of scripture, right? So why is that mentality important? Because the Jews couldn't believe that Jesus was the Christ because they didn't, they didn't have any room in their theology for a suffering savior. In other words, they, they didn't have any Isaiah 40 through 66 in their mind. 
that wasn't fashionable to the religion of the day that Jesus entered in, is what Stephen's telling us. Right? They had, so when, when uh, part of the problem with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus is they had no frame of reference in their mind for they were like we thought he was about to like raise an army and kick the romans out and that it was going to be this supernatural cataclysmic visitation of god and and he was going to set up the kingdom of david again and and uh, it was going to be geopolitical and and we they didn't expect a, a, a savior that was going to be uh falsely accused false betrayed by his disciples Betrayed by one disciple, abandoned by his other disciples uh, in an illegal trial where false accusations were made against him. And then in a very illegal, underhanded way, he was crucified. And he was, you know, he was received the Roman uh, 39 lashes. Why did they do 39 lashes? Because the, they had, actually had pieces of glass and stone and things tied into the whips that were, would grab the skin off the guy's back. And by Roman law, you were not allowed to give 40 lashes with that kind of whip because it was felt that, that 40 would kill you. It was a symbolic number. Like, you can't kill the person before you crucify him. You have to wait to, to, to let him die on the cross. Slow death. Slow death. Right? And, and so the Jews were like, if this man were blessed of God, nothing like this could have happened to someone blessed of God. Because they had a doctrine like we have today, that had no room for suffering in it. Don't we even kind of assume when somebody's going through something tough, they must have messed, they must have done something real disobedient or something. No, God, you know, uh, sometimes that could be true. It's one of the reasons you need personal pastoral care and you need to seek God. And you need to not jump to conclusions till you hear things out and seek God and have some perspective because there really is sometimes where God just takes you through times of suffering. And in the, the scriptures emphasize all through the New Testament that the Christ, it was predicted that the Christ would have to suffer. Because they're trying to say, man, 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 your guys' paradigms of scripture interpretation caused you to miss a major idea of the, of the scriptures. That's why the New Testament emphasizes that in about 20 places. Because it's trying to say, hey, Jews, this is your last chance to repent. Come back to, come back to your God. God is granting you a new repentance and reconciliation in Christ. And you're not recognizing him because you have paradigms of who the Messiah is going to be that don't allow you to recognize the Messiah when he's in your very midst. Has anybody ever had God doing something in their midst and you didn't recognize him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So is that that unbelievable? No. <clears throat> right? So that's the, like that, you know, I'm belaboring this point because that's a huge major emphasis of the book of Acts, the Gospels, and the epistles. It's all through the New Testament. That the Jews, the Christ crucifixion was a scandal to the Jewish mentality, but their mentality was causing them to overlook dozens of dozens and dozens of scriptures. as it is today. That's really important for you to see. All right, so John 10, 34b, the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, 
John Luke, you were next, right? Just read some of that about broken in the Greek. Luo. So, uh, some things here. This was actually, when I, took, when I took Greek in college, this was actually the first verb I learned to conjugate. And uh, does anybody study in New Testament Greek now? or they don't, Do they have it? They probably don't even have it at Wright State, right? We, Bowling Green didn't have it, but Bowling Green had a really cool rule that if you could get six or seven guys to, conf, uh, to, to approach a professor and he was willing to teach you a class, they would add a class just for you. So we had eight of us uh, found this, uh, the head of the Romance Languages Department was a frustrated guy because Greek was his, New Testament Greek was his main language and they didn't offer it at Bowling Green. So he was, he uh, was very happy to see us walk into his office and he uh, taught us all Greek for several years. And that was the first verb you learn to conjugate. In Spanish, you know how you go through first person, second person, third person, singular and plural, and there's about six or, or so conjugations, right? Six, yeah. In, the, in Greek, there's like 128 to 135 conjugations of every verb. Wow. And you have to memorize all those endings. <laughs> and they tell you everything. They tell you uh, seven different tenses, uh, person, singular, plural, all, uh, all sorts, past continuing, all sorts of things. What? Wait, what, are, what is Dan, Daniel and Deanna saying? What? That's Spanish. There's six different conjugations based on what person you are, but then there's all different rules based on which tense you're in. Right, Deanna said that, but I don't think it's as many as Greek. Yeah, versus 100, there really is like 125 to 135 on every Greek word. Yeah, that's why one of the reasons I like the New American Standard Bible is it's much more careful than any other English translation ever in translating the verbs. And so if, you are, if you're dealing with a time-tense word, uh, you almost always are more accurate in the New American Standard. That's why I dislike the New International Version because it's more sloppy about that than any other English translation that's ever been made as well as uh, very decidedly watering things down for to be more acceptable to American concept, uh, culture. Okay, but anyway, back to this word. This is kind of an important word. So when I say, uh, apparently you guys weren't, or at least John Luke wasn't familiar with the word piecemeal. Isn't that a common word? Like, you know, let's not do this piecemeal. I would say, like, let's say, you know, today, um, one the newest thing in, in, in academia is uh, you have to do group projects, right? Don't you hate group projects? Right, because what happens with group projects is you always have the person who's the best student and most conscientious has to end up doing the whole project because, no, everyone else wouldn't live up to their standards, right? Is that right, Jane Wong? Jane, am I, is that right? <laughs> right? Uh, my wife was very lucky because uh, she got Pat Pringer as her group project guy and the two of them were like you know one of those kind of people who never got a B kind of thing 
And uh, but you, yeah, usually group projects is the one of the problems. Is it is not everyone's bringing the same uh, yeah. commitment level, the same intensity level, the same background level, the same excellence level to the project, right? Mm -hmm. So whoever wants to get keep it to their normal standard of excellence ends up doing way more, right? Right. So if if you were doing a group project, you would you might say let's not do this piecemeal. If when I had to do group projects, I just said, I'll, okay, I'll do it and uh, to submit it to you guys <laughs> because I wasn't about to lower my standards to what they wanted to do, <laughs> right? Why, why would you bother? <laughs> you know, because they want to teach you. The whole idea is supposedly in the real world, software is written and engineering, all these things are done in group teams nowadays. But in, normally when you get in the real world and people are really getting paid and so forth, they usually have at least some expectation that they're real professionals. They're not just, uh, well, let's just say, uh, let's not go any further with that. Uh, piecemeal. That, I'm surprised that's, let's not just do this in parts. And we've, we've covered this before, but how many people were raised in a, in a situation where you were taught and expected to read whole books of the Bible and you were taught how to look for major themes and you were expected to read the whole Bible. Most of you, if the Dominion Academy students, that was probably new to you when you took the Bible survey one and two, right? Did you, had you read the whole Bible several times before and been taught how to look for like the major themes of what Matthew was about? And, no, right? Was that how you were raised? What is most teaching today in most churches? It's piecemeal. It's uh, preconceived ideas and proof text to back them up, right? Taken out of context. It, what's that? I'm not familiar. Is that a word, piecewise? It's a mathematical term? Piecemeal, that's a way of the same thing, saying the same thing, piecemeal. You say piecewise? Function is like it applies for, it's like one from here to here, or equals two from here to here. And then again, So that's a common math term, piecewise. Right, okay. Yeah, so uh, it's part, you know, like, wasn't there a chit like chicken uh, nuggets commercial or something that's parts as parts? <laughs> There used to be a chicken, like a, you know, like somebody mocking someone else's chicken nuggets or something, like probably Wendy's mocking, mocking McDonald's, and they said parts are parts is parts, you know, there because because oh, yeah. you know, like in McDonald's, they take the chicken and then they cook, they have a little old lady chew it up and then they spit it out and you know, it together, no. and then they make called they're called chicken nuggets. It'll do in a rush. What? It'll do in a rush. <laughs> And like, you know, some places are trying to advertise that they just have strips of chicken instead of mashed up parts. Right? All right. The, the whole point I'm trying to say is that a lot of what goes on in Christian circles today is approaching the scripture in terms of parts. And, the, you know, with the idea of the sum of thy word is truth, Psalm 169 or 119, 160. You know, like in football, you get to, if someone has 49 points, you assume that they have the sum of seven touchdowns and seven un extra points probably, because seven times seven is 49. But if you take away three touchdowns, you don't have the same sum. And so, I mean, to anything that's a whole, 
if you just look at parts of it, you're not looking at the same thing. That's all. Now, there are some things in nature that parts have, like in uh, the human cell, one cell has as much DNA as information as another cell. But um, I'd rather be friends with all of Jane Huang than uh, just a couple of her elbow cells or something. <laughs> Even though it would have the same, like I, I wouldn't be that thrilled about just having a, a, you know, a relationship with a piece of her finger that has the same DNA information. <laughs> right? So... There's, even if there is some ways in which the whole is there, it's just not there without the whole. And scripture is very much like that, is all I'm saying. All right, who's got the next scripture? 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You want to read, Gene, you want to read that? Kristen, why don't you look up Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 12.2 that are, can you see at the end of his scripture it says confer? Show them where we are, John Luke. Show them where we are in First Thessalonians. You can read it off the page if you want, or you can read it out of your Bible. But Kristen, you'll have to look up the Hebrews uh, 2.10 and 12.2. And then John, uh, Byron, look up Romans 2.4. Uh, Bob, look up Acts 11.18. And Jane, James 2.5. Let's read all those scriptures real quick. All right, so, excellent, excellent, thank you. So, yeah, it performs its work in you who believe, right? Now, let's analyze this a little bit. Hopefully you think like this when you read scripture. You, you know, to get a lot out of scripture, you have to kind of, like, think about, like, what are the words saying? What are they not saying? Right? So they're actually saying it only performs its work if people believe. So that's kind of different than the infallibility of Scripture on the surface, right? If you just took it that far, right? However, let's read these next few verses, then we'll discuss that question. Is this saying that Scripture only performs a work in people who they choose to make believe it? Is that what this is actually saying? And therefore, it doesn't do a work in everybody. So let's let's read the next few verses. Uh, Kristen, give us uh, Christine, right? Am I doing it? Christine? My bad. Get Christine, give us Hebrews two ten and twelve two. Okay, and is that the NIV? No, this is RSV. RSV uses pioneer. A lot of translations use author there. I like pioneer. That's good. Pioneer is a good, like, is someone who's like, you know, like, in Kentucky today, there's a lot of places named after Daniel Boone, right? Because he was one of the first guys who pioneered settling, right? So uh, some translations use author there, right? All right, go ahead and do uh, 12 2. Let's see if it uses pioneer or author. So, people who like to use other translations, see if there's another word besides pioneer or author in any other translations that you like. You know, you look up a variety of ones. 
Founder in the ESV? Okay. Founder and perfecter of our faith. Author is NASB. Anyone got anything else? Oh, uh, New King James says captain of your salvation. Captain? Wow. I'm your captain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an old rock song. <laughs> All right. Blue Oyster Cult. No. All right. Let's not go there. Uh, all right. So let's uh, keep that in mind that it's calling Jesus the author, right? Or the pioneer, the captain. What was the other one? There's one other word. I'm just founder of your faith and the perfecter of it, right? All right. So uh, who's got Romans 2 4? Byron? Yep, some translation says the kindness of God leads to repentance. So repentance is granted by God, is what we're saying. Bob, you got uh, Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified repentance. So, yeah, I like I like that because it says they shut up. Basically, they, <laughs> you know, like if you can get a bunch of religious people who are objecting to what God's doing to be quiet, let Him do it. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> no, it really is. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, they allowed God to do what he wanted. And so they shut up and they said, okay, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to faith. I guess we can have no more objections <laughs> to what God is doing. That's really what the verse is about. Uh, Jane, give us James 2.5. Now, without getting into uh, people groups or anything, that is saying God has chosen a certain group of people to be rich in faith. That goes against our modern sensibilities a little bit, doesn't it? Okay, so put all the, those uh, that are, you know, starting with Christine to Jane, read, and go back and reinterpret uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 in terms of, but for... You received our word, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs a work in those who believe. So what are some of those verses telling us about repentance and faith? They start with God. They're initiated by God. And, as Christine read, what was the word after pioneer? And, and they're finished by God. So God is involved in initiating repentance. He's initiating faith. The reason I threw in repentance, because in John, Jesus says, if anyone's willing to do my will, he'll know the teaching that it's from God. If you study systematic theology, there's a little debate sometimes about whether faith comes first or repentance comes first, right? But repentance is always listed before faith in the scripture. It's a valid, it's a valid uh, discussion, which we're not going to chase because we'll take, uh, chase down every t too many discussions. But, uh, but it's something you should think about. But in both, in both cases, what it is saying, that the word of God that went forth from Paul, what's the, what's the scripture saying? Give me some, a good summary here of this. Of, what is 1 Thessalonians 2.13 telling us? 
It's telling us that God destined some of the hearers that heard that word to be granted faith, to hear it, and those who were destined to be granted faith, the ones who God wanted it to perform a work in, in them, it performed a work in them. Right? Now, is it implying that everyone who heard that word, uh, it had an impact on them, they all repented and so forth? We see when the apostles go to, to every city, what do they do first? They follow two steps in every city that are biblical steps going way back to a pattern in the Old Testament and the pattern Jesus did. They see who welcomes them in, and if people invite them in, they stay. If they don't, then they shake off the dust and leave. Uh, well, that, that wasn't what I was going for. Peace. What's that? They go to the synagogue first. They always, because the biblical pattern going all the way back is God always takes his new movement by first taking a remnant out of his old movement. Whatever God is doing, he will actually cause some of his people to pioneer it. But most of his people will harden their heart against it. That's always been the case from all eternity. That's what Elijah cries out to God. He says, they've torn down your altars, they've persecuted your prophets, and I'm the last one left. He's feeling kind of bad for himself, right? Because Jezebel's after him. And, you know, if you ever had Jezebel after you, it can kind of can mess you up. <laughs> so, uh, right? And what does God say to him? I've reserved 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. I've always got some people who are going to go forward with me and who are going to be faithful. Every move of God has that. Some people are always going to be the pioneer of restoring things. That's always going to be the case. That, that's a pattern all through the Old Testament. You can see it in Noah, right? Didn't God preserve some? Adam and Eve's kids. Exactly. God is always calling a remnant out to be the pioneers of the new thing, right? So when they go, they go to the synagogue, and what happens at every synagogue? Some believe and follow, right? First, we always try to get you to read Acts 17 when you join our group that says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. The ones that sought the scripture every day to see, because Barnabas and Paul were t t telling them the same scriptures, but they were telling them a very different paradigm of interpretation over the scriptures they'd studied all their life. And so they were like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing some brand new things that I've never heard before. I got to see if this is right. This isn't how I was brought up. If you're ever going to find God's will for yourself, you're going to have to go way past how you're brought up. Right? Way past. What I always say, what does that have to do with it? It doesn't have to do with anything. You're implying your parents are omniscient. Yeah. <laughs> right. My parents were wonderful Christians, but they weren't omniscient. Especially now. <laughs> That's terrible. All right. 
My dad's in heaven. He's my dad's probably knows a lot more now, but he's not able to he's not able to send me any information. All right. Um, let somebody read uh, Second Peter. Who's next? Uh, that'd be Sydney or or Deanna. Deanna. Okay, uh, somebody get out both the ESV, and actually I'd like to hear what the RSV says on that verse, uh, verse 19. Acts 1, 19. Uh, somebody give me the NASB and someone else the ESV there, because I purposely chose the NKJV because I thought the wording was better, better uh, to what I, the limited understanding of Greek I have. Re read it in the RSV, just verse 19. Acts one nineteen, or I'm sorry, Second Peter one nineteen. Second Peter one nineteen. Now, if you notice my reference, whenever I put like one sixteen to two three, I'm suggesting that you go back and study the whole thing in context. But I didn't have enough room on the page for listening the whole thing. But I think you'd get even more out of it if you read the whole the whole section of. You know, and remember, the chapter breaks were added later, and that this is one of those cases where the chapter break comes right in the middle of a paragraph. What, in my opinion, like what a continuing thought. But anyway, just verse 19 of the RSV. If you don't know the, any history on the RSV, the RSV is a very, very important translation in the history of Christianity, and we could talk about that sometime if you want. Go ahead. All right, so who has NASB? Go ahead. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Just, start, just stop with that, actually. So both of them say more sure. Just read the first line. Who's got ESV? Go ahead, Daniel. More fully confirmed. Right. Okay, whereas notice that the, N, the NKJV says prophetic word confirmed. What, uh, why is that kind of important? Because the translators have really kind of added the concept of more because frankly it either is or it isn't it's it it's not more it's the prophetic word was confirmed by by uh, by what he's talking about the mount of transfiguration right and he's saying uh that the mount of transfiguration confirmed the prof the prophetic nature of the old testament scriptures about christ which is all the old testament scriptures that's what this the verse is saying now, and he's saying you do well to heed this as a light that shines in a dark place until the morning, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. How's that part rooted in the RSV? This, the last part of verse 19. As compared to until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And what about the part where it says you do well to heed? Uh, you will do well to pay attention. Pay attention. I like that. Pay attention. Okay. So, what what does this verse have to do with the infallibility of Scripture? The word confirms itself. It's not contradictory. It's not saying like that wall's green and the other one's green when the one behind you is blue. Like it, it matches what it says. So. 
what's he saying will happen if we pay attention to it? If we pay heed to it, what's going to happen? Yeah, the, the morning star is a word picture of Jesus in Scripture. So he's saying if you pay heed to the Old Testament prophetic word, Jesus is going to start rising in your heart. It's going to perform a work. Right? It's, he's basically telling the doctrine of infallibility of Scripture. It's going to do something. You're not going to just pay attention to the prophetic word concerning Jesus all through the Old Testament and have nothing happen. If you pay attention to it, the morning star will start to arise in your heart. In other words, you'll be enlightened. You'll progress out of darkness into his manifest wonderful light, right? All right, flip up. So, that, so we're saying the word of God is going to do a work. Oh, do we uh, have the worldview and epistemology charts here? Yeah. Do we? Does everybody have those? I, I don't have one in front of me. If you don't have one, let Stephen know. Uh, give one to uh, to Chris and have him or Sam, one of those guys. And you guys go opposite directions. Raise your hand if you need one. In other words, they're going to run around and give them to you quickly. Do you need one? If you have one already, then don't grab one. Sam was too lazy to run around with him. <laughs> he just passed him around. That's all right. No, I'm just kidding. It, it's, it's working. I'm just messing with you. All right, so let's uh, let's let's get philosophical for a minute. So we're talking about uh, in this. You know, section C of, of the Kingdom of God series, what I'm trying to do basically in section C is start with the concept of authority, but I, we want to go through and talk about some major biblical ideas. So we're going to look at about 9 to 12 major biblical themes. The first one being authority. But authority is... Uh, let's just say, uh, is sort of an inevitable concept is what I'm try trying to get at. So authority, like somewhere there has to be ultimate reality. Somewhere there has to be the origin of things. Right? And somewhere there has to be uh, the source of final truth. Now, I'm saying that in the biblical view, and I think perhaps inevitably, those concepts are always interrelated. So let's get a little philosophical here for a minute. Why would who or what is ultimately real? Remember when we talked about worldviews, we talked about the first component of a worldview is who or what is ultimately real. And why did we say you can't just say who or you can't just say what? You have to say who or what? Not everyone would believe it's a who. Like if you're a pantheist, it'd be a what, right? If you're a if you're a materialist, it would be what, right? But if you're a polytheist or a monotheist, it would be who or whom are ultimately real, right? So, 
can anyone see that, uh, in my opinion, where you think is the source of reality or truth is inextricably intertwined with who or what you think is the prime mover? Right? So what's, like, you know, if you're a materialist worldview, what's the prime mover of everything? Matter. What? Matter. Matter. And so that's why you, uh, you have something like the Big Bang Theory. Right? And actually, uh, I'm not so sure the Big Bang Theory isn't dissimilar to when God said, let there be light, because the, if I understand the Hebrew, let there be light would actually mean let there be light, 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 light. And what we should have expected to find based on Genesis 1 is a universe that light is still being created and 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 a universe that's still unfolding to, to, in, in galaxies, solar systems, and so forth. And that's, in fact, what we have. Because God didn't say, let there be just so much light, let it stop. He'd have to say that this, there's enough. That's enough. Stop. If I understand. I, I think we should have anticipated finding a universe like that based on the scripture. Right? So, but uh, can anybody, why do you think that that has some, uh, where the origin of all things would have some relationship to what's ultimately true? So let's stay with being a materialist. What do materialists think uh, started the Big Bang was what? Chance. Chance. Fortuitous occurrence of atoms. Chance. Like, it, it happened, <laughs> right? And, and maybe we could, pot, you know, we weren't there, so there's no scientific way of knowing nor historical legal way of knowing, but maybe based on what we do know about the laws of nature and if uniformitarianism is true, that is all laws of nature that are currently presently working, uh, have always been working and they're always going to be the same, which in a chance universe that would be logical. Uh, not necessarily logical in a monotheistic worldview. But if that is the case, we might have some speculations on what caused the Big Bang to happen someday. But whether or not we'd ever be able to actually prove that, that's kind of highly doubtful. Right? Now, so if, that's, if chance is ultimate, then move, going down these three things on the worldview chart, who or what is ultimately real, the nature of man, and so forth, uh, not flipping over yet to epistemology, but I'm saying that there has to be inevitably in all thinking and systems somewhere where ultimate truth resides, right? So if you were going to stay a materialist, where would ultimate truth be? Chance. Matter. Chance, but perhaps... There are ultimately some laws of matter out there that we can discern and so forth. So we, but ultimately, we can't know truth. We can only know man's reasoning and man's science. But ultimately, not even, not even uh, most people philosophically would make a leap to say man's science is omniscient or man's logic is omniscient, right? So that leaves you philosophically agnostic, right? Yes. I mean, right? 
Yeah. And, uh, and actually, if you're, most true philosophical agnostics are actually believing a self-contradictory idea. The idea is, is there could always be new facts that we come to understand logically or scientifically or some other way, right, that could totally cause us to reinterpret what we think we know up till now. So we are dogmatically saying you could never know dogma. We are, we are saying that we know that it's impossible to know. That's what agnosticism is actually saying. We know for sure, the only thing we know for sure is that we know nothing, Bill and Ted. <laughs> You're back to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, no matter where you go. <laughs> Wait, that's that's that isn't isn't that what Socrates was saying? All we can know for sure is that we don't know. But they're saying they know that for sure. What's what's contradictory about that? That you can't know if you don't know. You yeah. could be right and not know it. You could be right and not know it, or you could be wrong and not know it. You're having to, to, to say that. Why it's self-contradictory is actually you're having to assume that there's no such thing as an omniscient, uh, personable God who does know. And you're, you're having to assume that. And can you know enough to assume that? No. So it's actually a very self-contradictory place. And you should, as a Christian, be able to help them see that. Does everyone see what I'm saying? Um, if you're not familiar with the writings of Tim Keller, he does a very good job in his book, The Reason for God. He, he, uh, the first half of the book, he deals with the, most, the eight most common objections of modern millennials against the truths of Christianity. And he shows how each of them is making an irrational leap of doubt. In other words, they're assuming facts, not in evidence. And to be agnostic, you're actually having to assume there is no God. There's no one who could know or does know. But how do you know that? Does everyone get that? That's very important to see. Is that not clear to everyone? Chris, is that clear to you? Okay. All right, so that, that's kind of important. Um, so what I'm just trying to get at is this, hopefully this is making sense. Everybody has some idea that ultimately there's some source of truth. And I'm saying that they're always gonna be inextricably intertwined with your ideas about who or what is ultimately real what's ultimately the first or prime mover in the universe, uh, is there a design or purpose, and things like that. Okay. Now, if you remember, we went through the backside, this epistemology chart. Does everybody kind of understand reason and that the, the, the problem with reason is twofold problems. If, uh, if your presuppositions are wrong, then your reasoning will be wrong. Or if you have correct presuppositions, but you make arguments that are fallacious. How many people read Love is a Fallacy? We, that was one of our assignments. Who, who read it? You read it? Was it funny? Who did not read it? 
Okay, I'm telling you, it's funny. I'm telling you, you will learn a lot and you'll get a good laugh at the end. I don't want to ruin it for you. Should, next week, I'll tell you what, Jane, next week, give us a summary of Love is a Fallacy. So if no one has read it by then, you're blow, it's like telling the movie, what's, what do they call it? Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Jane's going to tell you the punchline next week. If you don't so, read it by then, it'll be too late. If you don't read it by then, it's too late. <laughs> do we want to meet next week, even though it's finals week? It's not finals for you. Where, uh, where's your dad tonight? It's not your turn to watch him. <laughs> that's, that's what we used to say about our friends in high school. If someone asked, asked us where our friend was, uh, not my turn to watch him. wonder if he's out of town. He travels a lot, you know. He's got all those kids. All right. Um, So we all get that, right? And we all talked about the limitations of science, and we talked about what scientism is. Who can give me a quick definition of what scientism is? If a bunch of scientists get a room together and say it's true, it must be true. Right. Isn't that kind of what uh, a very important part of uh, the scientific climate of today? Yep. Right? We've had Supreme Court cases strike down uh, people who teach uh, creationism or even intelligent design because they've said that the scientific community has said pontifically, uh, absolutely, you know, de declaratively that they've said it as a religious dogma. Of course, the Supreme Court wouldn't use religious. That they, it's dogmatic that if anyone doesn't believe in evolution, they must be an idiot. We have Supreme Court cases now that say that. That movie Expelled. Yeah, that sense. movie Expelled brings that out. Is it? Most people have probably seen that, right, with Ben Stein. Ben Stein, what a guy. Um, Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> He's the guy in Ferris Bueller's Dairy House. All right, so we talked about historical and legal proof, right? Right? Now, uh, is that a, a important thing in Christianity? Why? Deanna says yes. Is she right? What's that? Yeah, in fact, uh, the scriptures give us evidences of the resurrection, right? What does Paul say? If there's no resurrection, then we're of all men most to be pitied. We might as well go eat, drink, and be merry. Party at Bradbury's house after. <laughs> oh, no, you guys do that already? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, uh, you know, right? So... Historical or legal proof, if, uh, if you haven't ever read some of the books on the historicity of the resurrection, some of the easiest ones to get started with would be, um, let me give you three of them. One would be uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. If you haven't read a book on the historical proofs of the resurrection, that's a good one. Um, another one is um, John Stott's Basic Christianity. And a third one is that's very popular today is Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. Um, I personally like one called Who Moved the Stone? And uh, someone could look it up real quick. Is it Frank Morris or Morrison? I always forget. Morris or Morrison that wrote it. He was a journalist in England in the 1920s. The reason I particularly like his is he goes into great detail about how the trial of Jesus was illegal and why it broke, like in the name of the law, they broke many parts of the Mosaic law in trying Jesus. 
and uh, he does a very good job with point with that. And he was uh, very. Does everyone know the story of Lee Strobel and how and how his how he came about? You know, he was a, a a journalist with uh, and a lawyer with one of the two big Chicago papers, and he was the the guy who covered like the law law cases and so forth. And he set out from a legal point of view to prove once and for all that the resurrection of Christ was a hoax. And is one of many who set out to do that, who became a Christian in the process. That movie, I thought of my own. Yeah, what is it? It's based on uh, Case of Christ. Is it on Netflix? Yes. Yeah. So I, I actually, uh, I don't know if you ha- would have the technology to do this, but I have, I have the whole book uh, with him reading it, but it's on cassette tape. Would you be able to translate it into our MP3 somehow? And... <laughs> we could probably find a way. First, I mean, you can my take. Oh well, there goes my coffee. Like, to buy a cheap piece of equipment, like yeah. a like a tape player or something. Okay. Anyway, uh, just leave it. It's okay. It was empty anyway. So. Okay. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about revelation or spiritual enlightenment. Um, what's that all about? <laughs> Somebody read uh, John fifteen twenty six and twenty seven. Who's the next scripture reader? Sydney, uh, Sam. You read Acts five thirty one and thirty two. Uh, Daniel, read John sixteen thirteen. All right, Sydney, you got it. You got a uh, John four uh, fifteen twenty six and twenty seven. Yeah. Because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, next week we're going to do more of this, but basically what he's saying there. Well, let's read Acts five thirty one and thirty two first, then we'll talk about it because uh, those say the same thing. Listen carefully to this, unless you're willing to turn there. Good. So verse 32 says, And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit, he's saying, is a witness in a court of law. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and John 15 says the same thing. When the Helper, who is the Greek word parakletos, one of the names for the Holy Spirit, when he comes, that and he calls him, that is the Spirit of truth, so you're, you're, you're clear, whom uh, the Father will send, you know, he proceeds from the Father. His job is he's going to bear witness of me. Give us, uh, give us Acts 5.32 in the RSV, please. Pretty much word for word the same, right? So uh, tell me a little bit about that. Give me some thoughts on that. Have you ever thought in your Christian life, like, uh, how many people can remember when you didn't know the Lord? And, right? Okay. And you, now, do you remember the Holy Spirit bearing witness to you that, the, that it was true? And when you started to get leadings from the Holy Spirit that were according to Scripture and so forth? Does everyone remember that transition? I certainly do. 
when I began to realize that this, this Holy Spirit who had intervened in my life, he was the truth. And before, I'd lived in a, in a universe where I was locked in the darkness of my own mind. And when I went back and realized what I was like before I knew God, it was actually kind of scary to think about it. Like I was living a life basically trapped in my own thoughts. Right? And so um, the Bible postulates that we have a spirit. And uh, who can tell me some of the components? There's three primary components of your spirit. Uh, your will is actually part of your soul. Your mind is part of your soul. The part that can be indwelt by other spirits. Right. Your spirit can be can mingle or be indwelt by other spirits. Right? Has anybody ever gotten demon spirits cast out of them? I have. Right? Okay. So, uh, anybody ever cast demon spirits out of someone else? Hopefully... That's a normal part of your Christian experience. The Bible seems to indicate that it is. Right? I always wonder how people read the Gospels and then don't do anything with casting demons out or whatever. Like, how do you do that? I don't know. That's American Christianity somehow. But that's just weird. They assume all the demons left. Yeah, that with the modern psychology to cast them all out. <laughs> yeah. Right, that is what it's that, that is what it's replaced by. Okay, so your spirit has the ability to fellowship or mingle with other spirits. And uh, the the truth of the Bible is very different than say pantheism. You don't lose like in pantheism, you would actually seek to lose your identity into the great impersonal spirit. But the Bible is very clear that spirits are personable, right? Even demons are personable. That it says in James two nineteen. The demons believe and fear. Fear is a personable emotion. Faith is a personable thing. Right? So even the demons have personalities. Right? Quite clearly in Scripture. Right? So uh, what else does your spirit have? No, that's also your soul. So we hit all three things of your soul. Your mind, your will, and your emotions are part of your soulical being. two other parts of your spirit your spirit has uh, your an intuitive knowledge that God exists well no you just I would say your spirit knows that God is real and that's actually what you're running from before you know Christ you're trying to not acknowledge that you're trying to suppress that truth and unrighteousness that's basically what Roman. Read Romans one, two, and three more carefully, and you'll see that you're you're actually. Uh, that's why they say there's no atheist in foxholes. One of the, if you want an interesting study, um, J, D. James Kennedy, who's long since been dead, I still remember the day he died. I cried. Uh, good, very good pastor guy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Very famous pastor of the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, probably died in. 2005-ish or so, um, he, he, he did some really good teachings about famous atheists crying out to God on their deathbeds. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of atheists have been known to have cried out to God for mercy on their deathbeds. 
Why? Because everyone knows, that's why they say there's no atheist where? In a foxhole. Fox that's a What's that? There's no, there's no, no, well, no atheists when they're by themselves. That's a good idea. That's a good point. There's no atheists when they're facing death. Everyone knows there's a God. But every fallen man, is sin nature is to try to suppress that, right? Mm -hmm. But your spirit has an intuitive knowledge that there is a God. What else is one other part your spirit has? Look in Romans 2 for it. Maybe you're right and wrong. Yeah, your spirit has a conscience. And you're either excusing all your conscience all your life or callousing your conscience and so forth. But your spirit is intended to reflect accurately the, the laws of God. But we callous our conscience over time by our sinful behaviors and by our excuse-making and rationalizing and justifying. And it's possible to sear your conscience to the point where uh, it bothers you about all the wrong things and it doesn't bother you at all about the right things. Like there's in psychology, there's a, a problem called obsessive compulsive disorder. Some people are very bothered by things in their conscience that God doesn't give a darn about. That's why they go around washing their hands or picking up trash or feeling guilty. And some of the guys that I've had the uh, least, the most trouble helping them find the, the the forgiveness in Christ and so forth are guys that, if you were to, you know, has anyone ever seen the second scene in the Luther movie? Remember, his pastor comes to him, and, and he says, Martin, I've been your confessor for two years now, and you've never confessed anything remotely interesting. <laughs> right? I mean, I, in, in a, back in way long ago, uh, 20 years ago, I, I worked with a guy who was extremely obsessive-compulsive disorder, couldn't find forgiveness in God and so forth. And, you know, but if you get into any list of sins, he hadn't done any of them. Like, did you ever... You get drunk, never even tasted beer. Did you ever smoke weed? No. Steal anything? No. Look at uh, pornography? No. Uh, you know, like, there, I was like, did you ever do anything wrong? <laughs> but he felt very guilty about everything. Mm -hmm. Because it's not necessarily anything to do with whether you've actually uh, sinned or not sinned. It's, it has to do with your conscience. Before you come to Christ, your conscience is not working properly. Part of salvation is to have Christ come into your spirit, and as you walk with God, he restores your conscience to act the way it was meant to be. That's why Paul warns us, don't reject faith or a good conscience. Like one of the things as a Christian you should know, I'm surprised that this is new ground for people, and this is sad. Uh, as a Christian, you should know that God, when Christ came into your life and began to restore your conscience, that was a very, very, very gracious, wonderful thing and as part of your miraculous salvation. And stewarding that conscience is a very important thing. Not letting it get callous, not blame-shifting, excuse-making. There are some guys, you know, we've all dealt with, it, uh, especially if you've discipled or whatever, you dealt with people who you can never quite trust if they're telling you the truth. In some cases, because they've lied to themselves so long, you don't even know. They, you know, like they, you give them to do this or that, and they don't do it because their conscience is defiled. And that's a very serious thing, but lots of people are in that position. And you don't necessarily have to be, in reality, a terrible sinner 
Lots of times people who are brought up in a very legalistic kind of Christianity have that problem. Right? If you were born up in a very performance-based Christianity, you may have deep wounds in your conscience and all kinds of problems with false guilt. And there biblically is real guilt and false guilt. And part of your sanctification and your growing in Christ should be asking God to help your conscience so that you have real guilt over what he cares about. And that you don't any longer have false guilt over things that aren't important. I mean, can you identify with, uh, this is not new to anybody, is it? Like, have you ever struggled with false guilt over things God doesn't really care about? Yeah. Right? That's part of the consequences of antinomianism and legalism. Right? Have you ever had God, your conscience not bother you very much about things that the scripture clearly says you're not supposed to be doing? Right? <laughs> So we all can relate to this. Part of salvation is that when Christ comes into your spirit, he quickens your conscience, and he begins to restore it to what it was meant to be, an accurate reflection of the character and nature and attributes of God, his spirit, and his law. That's part of our salvation. And that's why you need to be very careful about whether you're a truth teller or not. Right? Do you understand that, like, whenever you sin, you have to go through a process of deception to sin? Does everyone get that? Yeah. Like, you have to kind of convince yourself it's not going to cost that much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody ever been there? Yes. <laughs> Does anyone want to admit to that? <laughs> you should have like three hands up. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We've all done that, right? And that defiles our conscience, and then then it doesn't work like it's supposed to work. Don't we excuse make, blame shift, rationalize? My mother bit me when I was five. The sun was in my eyes. You know, we have lots of reasons. We we tell our teachers that our paper's not, we need more time for our test. And, you know, we have all kinds of ways of blame shifting, excuse making, and rationalizing. All of that is defiling our conscience. We have lots of ways of self-deception, right? And one of the, what you want to do when you're walking with God is ask God to, to clean that all up. And he, that starts by when you're born again, when, you're, when the Holy Spirit comes into your spirit at conversion, at the new birth. And that's a process of growth that you want to take very seriously. You want to guard your conscience. There's, there's lots of scriptures. Who can Somebody find a scripture or two when Paul says, talks about those who crash because they rejected faith in a good conscience, right? Somebody find that scripture. Those who suffer shipwreck is the, is the New American Standard because they rejected faith in a good conscience. So if it, I'm, I'm actually hitting something new here, and that wasn't intended, but that's probably a good place to stop and a good side benefit. Um, if you've never given much thought to the fact that you have a God-given conscience and it's supposed to reflect him, 
and his law, and it was meant to be a blessing to you. Your conscience is supposed to warn you. And we defile it by lying, blame-shifting, excuse-making, twisting, and all sorts of things, right? And you need to understand that your conscience can become an ungodly tyrant, bothering you about things that it shouldn't bother you about. And it can also become uh, callous in the things it should bother you about. And you need to appeal to God all the time to be restoring your conscience. Go ahead and read it real quick. Which version? Uh, it doesn't matter. What you tell us what you got. First Timothy one nineteen. Um, Christine, why don't you give us the RSV of First Timothy one nineteen when he's done? Okay. ESV. First Timothy one nineteen. Go ahead. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. That's good. Hmm. So New American Standard also talks about shipwreck. Does anything is any translation say something different than shipwreck? Like in Yeah. ISV. ISV which says by ignoring their consciousness, some people have destroyed their faith like a wrecked ship. Destroyed their faith like a wrecked ship. What is ISV? International Standard. I Oh, it's uh, is, are you on Bible Hub? Yeah. Yeah, Bible Hub's good for that. It gives you a, like 30 or 40 translations right now. I like that Berean yeah. study Bible. It says thereby. It says some have rejected them thereby. Well, that's a good place to stop. Uh, next week we'll get into. So are we on connecting with, uh, I'm trying to say that it's inevitable that there would be somewhere that we would put both truth as authority and moral authority. And I think it's inevitable that those have to come from the same source. Because by authority, we could mean, we could mean wh who or what is ultimately true. But we could also mean who or what ultimately has the right to, 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 you know, to give us moral truths and absolutes and so forth, right? And I think all systems, whether they know it or not, have absolutes. But they're going to be inextricably intertwined to, how, to epistemology and how you answer the question, who or much is, is ultimately real, and what is the nature of man? They're always going to be inextricably intertwined. So if you're a polytheist versus a materialist versus a Christian, you're going to see those things differently. Right? That's why we have, like, the Ober, Obergefeld, however you say that. How do you say it? Obergefeld. Obergefeld. Uh, decision, you know, and... and as you remember, my son John gave an excellent teaching called uh, on gay mirage because a lots of Christians are basically saying we shouldn't even acknowledge that it is marriage because it isn't. And, uh, you know, um, that's actually a pretty important truth. And it doesn't matter what they say be, because, you you know, we are saying that we live in a, in a universe that God has defined reality. All right, we'll pick it up next week with uh, enjoy this handout of Stevens. What, uh, one thing I forgot to mention that he does a lot with, uh, it's on your outline. See where it says, see Stevens infallibility handout for fulfill. So he does a lot with, uh, you know, I, there's about, I think there's 36 times in the Gospels, and then there's several in Acts 
where it says this happened so that the scripture was fulfilled. And, and you probably got most of those on here, right? I didn't read this book. I had to leave out about 40 throughout the whole scripture that printed on six pages. Right, okay. So often the scripture says, uh, especially in the Gospels, somewhat in Acts, but there are other places in the Psalms that say, so that such and such was fulfilled. And, uh, you know, uh, you probably gave a few from, like, Jeremiah and the Psalms and stuff like that too, right? So notice that it's uh, part of the infallibility of Scripture is that the Scripture has to be fulfilled. It has to be. So that's a pretty good handout. And uh, Stephen made it no extra charge, so be sure to thank Stephen on, on the way out. Um, and we will get into the Holy Spirit and the fact that it's inevitable if we're going to live in this world that there has to be some delegated sources of authority, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, I don't know how much time we'll spend on the Holy Spirit, so we'll probably get into... Uh, do we want to have this next? Who, who thinks they will not be here because of finals next week? Don't be. I wouldn't be if I was a student, to be honest. Chris probably won't be. Who else? Christine, what do you think? You'll be here. Anybody else? You'll, maybe not because we'll maybe it depends on how your finals are coming and so forth. Studies. Jane, what do you think? You think you'll be all right? All right, so I think we'll go ahead and meet next week, and I'm probably going to deal with this, uh, the subject that it's inevitable that there be a, be a thing called hierarchy in all views of covenant authority, kingdom authority. There has to be some way of delegating that authority, and so we're going to look at uh, some of the different spheres, such as the family, the church, etc., civil government, and how God delegates an author- authority, and what is legitimate and what's illegitimate authority, and stuff like that next week. Oh, we don't have a room assignment for next week. Oh, we don't have this room? We have Oh, uh, do do we want to meet at GCF next week then? Can Chris? Can we get some people from Wright State there, like Christine, Dan, Dan and Jane? Can you work on that? Okay. What's uh, what do you got testing next week? We'll start. Let's somebody remember to start by praying for Kyle's test. What what subject? Met lab, meth lab, no. <laughs> Matt lab. How's that spelled? <laughs> For math lab or? Yeah. Math works. is the name of the company that designed math lab. Cool. Interesting. <laughs> Matrix laboratory, and is it for several classes or one class in particular? But it sounds like several of you have taken that class. So is it a class that all engineers take? No, not all. Mechanical, Mechanical engineers? Electrical. Computer engineering also takes that? No. Does not? No. Electrical and, me- and uh, all right. Bradbury and I know about meth lab. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just kidding. I actually saw a PBS special on that once, and I was like, wow. Like, if you don't believe, when Proverbs says, those who hate wisdom love death, like, if you don't yeah. believe that fallen men have a death wish that's pushing them in their life, start, look at, look at the details of why someone would do meth. Like, people who go into it know it's going to kill them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I mean, there actually is a problem. Fallen men have a problem where they're scared to die because, the, you know, Hebrews talks about through fear of death. Fallen men know that, there's, that they're not in a right state spiritually, but they also actually have a suicide uh, part. Some people smoke themselves gradually to death, eat themselves to death, you, you name it. But the truth is, is fallen men uh, have, a, have a, gra a death wish. And, uh, you know, there's nothing can explain why people would become a meth addict or something because they know going into it that it's going to kill them. And it's, that's true of, like, a lot of the heroin addiction now and stuff like that. People know the first time they do it that they're, they're doing something really dangerous and really stupid. So it's a sad thing. Uh, I love when I, someone comes to Christ and gets delivered from all that stuff. That is always awesome. All right. Uh, did we say a closing prayer? Bradbury, say a closing prayer.